Fund and Bliss Farm Calls, where we take horse owners along with us to discuss important topics on equine health and care with industry experts. Today, we're talking with Dr. Nicola Persterla about EPM and horses. Equus Farm Calls podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Farnham, the makers of Weight Builder Equine Weight Supplement. Horses with a high caloric demand can be hard to keep weight on. When your horse needs help maintaining weight, incorporating fat into his diet can safely add calories without the risk of digestive upset. Weight Builder Equine Weight Supplement contains 50% fat with no sugar added to help maintain optimal weight and body condition. One daily scoop provides high-fat calories rich in omega-3 fatty acids to promote a healthy skin and glossy coat and deliver a calming energy for performance. Ideal for performance horses, mature horses, underweight horses, and seniors. I'm Kim Brown, group publisher of the Equine Health Network. Dr. Pusterla is a DVM and a PhD, and he's boarded in internal medicine and equine dentistry. He's a professor of equine internal medicine and dentistry at the University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. His research focus is on equine infectious diseases. Dr. Pusterla also leads the UC Davis Equine Infectious Disease Research Laboratory. Thank you, Dr. Pusterla, for joining us this morning to talk about EPM and horses. Well, it's exciting. Thanks, Kim, for inviting me to this postcast. Well, we know that EPM is still out there. It hasn't gone away, and horse owners need to know what they need to watch for. And I just wanted to do a little refresher of what it is and what causes it and how it's diagnosed and how it's treated, just to kind of remind everyone that we are making advances, but it's still there, and we need to be on the lookout for it. So, Dr. Stella, what is EPM? Well, it depends how much time you have, but I'm going to try to make this fairly short and not confusing too much. So EPM stands for equine protozoal myeloencephalitis. The disease is actually in that acronym. It affects horses and it's caused by protozoal organisms. And I put this plurals and I'll get that. I'll get back to that. And it causes infection generally of the spinal cord. But these organisms can really invade any part of the central nervous system. And, and that makes really one of the greatest challenges is because we have a diversity of clinical expression. If we look at the entities that cause EPM, so this started in the early 40s. And the first organism that was actually identified was Sarcocystis neurona. And, and don't get worried too much about the nomenclature. Know that there are different pathogens, different parasites. So Sarcocystis neurona is, is a specific parasite for which the definitive host is the Virginian opossum, which means that wherever the Virginian opossum lives, you can expect horses to potentially develop EPM. Now, we know that the spectrum of some of these animals 
has expanded in the past decades. So, you know, we can blame it on, if we can't get, blame it on COVID, we're going to blame this one on global warming. I'm just kidding on that one. I'm, I'm just being <laughs> pragmatic, but that, that's the reality. You know, we always feel like, and I have a lot of colleagues, they talk to me, they live in areas that are relatively cold and they tell me, well, we don't have EPM because we don't have the opossum. And I always say, well, it's not because you don't see the opossum, the opossums aren't there. So opossum are highly adapted and they will move in territories where they haven't been seen. So it's not because the disease hasn't been reported that the disease isn't present or the definitive host isn't present. So how does this work? That organism, Sarcosystis neurona, uses the opossum and, and generally loves new additions, so loves the pups, so loves the offspring of these opossum. And, and these generally happen in the spring. That's why we generally see, if we look at the seasonality, we see more succocystis neurona sporosis, so the infectious organism that shed out the feces of opossum in the springtime compared to the wintertime. And a lot of that has to do with the population dynamic. And yet these opossum are more likely to forage and move around during the harder time of the year. So what happened, that organism invades the small intestine of these opossum, it replicates an infectious organism that shed in the feces. And these feces that contain these infectious organisms are then contaminating food, water, pasture, you just name it. And then horses just happen to come along and accidentally ingest this highly resistant infectious organism and then the cycle to some extent occurs in the host and it's where it gets a little bit tricky and there's still some information that we don't know so i would say that in the u.s a lot of horses are becoming into contact with sarcosystis neurona to contaminated feed and water. When we do studies and we look at antibody response, which is not equal EPM, well understood, it means like what is the percentage of adult horses living in the US that have encountered Sarcosystis serona, where that organism has developed in certain stages, hasn't, however, invaded the central nervous system. If we look at that percentage, it's very high. Somewhere, depending on the geographic region, which then parallels to the population of horses and the interaction with opossum, somewhere in the 70%. So that means that, you know, two out of three horses in the US, if you would take a blood sample and look at antibodies against Sarcosystis neurona, you would find antibodies, which means that they only have been exposed to it, but they haven't developed EPM. So we need to understand that it's it's two different aspects. The percentage of horses that develop EPM is really the tip of the iceberg. There's still many factors that we don't understand. And that's why, you know, science is still trying to find ways to understand what sets a horse apart from another in the risk of developing EPM. We know that there are risk factors. And most of these risk factors are similar to any infectious diseases. I'm, I'm just going to use this as a parallel. Okay, so please don't quote me on that. We all know about COVID-19. And it's easy for me to relate to COVID-19 because everybody has heard about it. So every human being has a different susceptibility. 
Somebody's susceptibility depends on many factors. Sometimes it's environment, but there's also a lot of host specific, so human specific factors, ethnicity, age, sex, comorbidity. These are the main ones. So if we look at horses, what are these risk factors? And there are risk factors that have been determined. We know that age plays a role. There is no sex bias, so meaning you know females and males will be equally infected. There is actually an occupational hazard. We know that performance horses, horses of racetrack, horses that move around are a greater risk. We also know that there's a seasonality to it. You know, if we think about well, how can I prevent it? Well. Well, you can move outside a territory where there's a possum. That's one way. It's probably not practical to board your horde up in Alaska and have to get there twice a day. So that's probably not doable. But, you know, th there's certain factors that we can interact with. Seasonality, difficult. Uh, location, difficult. But, you know, aspect of performance, potentially. And then if you think about what is in the performance it's generally relates to stress. So these are horses that are on the road, go to shows, different environment, and there is a level of stress that has, and we know that when we human beings are stressed, we're more likely to become infected. We're more likely to get disease, to infectious dis diseases because we're more susceptible. So there's potentially a link, but the whole story hasn't been told yet. There are many research groups that are actually looking at trying to to, to identify are there any specific factors that are host specific, that are specific to that individual horse that allow that horse to succumb or become infected and develop EPM. So with this, you know, I, I start I start babbling around and then I forget where we actually started. So we started with EPM and organism. So while I wish we could just stay with Sarcosystis neurona has his own life cycle and we associate that with the opossum, there are two additional protozoal organisms that make a minority of these EPM cases, but we have to take these into account because it plays a role in the diagnostic in order to support through immunodiagnostic. One of them is Neospora husei. That was discovered in the mid-80s. It has a slightly different life cycle. We know that horses here act as intermediate hosts. They become infected. They will harbor for the rest of their life an insisted form. And then occasionally when they become stress immunocompromised, that organism will reactivate. And in very rare instances, I really want to repeat that in very rare instances, that organism will find its way into the central nervous system, potentially leading to EPM. So Neospora husei shares a lot of parallel to Neospora caninum. And I'm saying that because Neospora caninum is a, is a huge contributor towards abortion in cattle, a protozoal organism that leads to a lot of losses in, in pregnancy. And we know that in cattle, it is transmitted. So it originated, the, the definitive host is the dog. But beyond the dog, once the organism is present in a, excuse me, in, in a female, so in a cow, in a female bovine, then the organism will reactivate during late gestation. And that has a lot to do with shifts in the immune, in the immunity 
and will invade the uteroplacental unit, infecting the fetus. And the fetus can either die, that would cause uh, abortion or stillbirth, or the fetus is born healthy, but now, same as his mom, harbors the organism. And that's what we call vertical transmission from mom to offspring. And that is perpetuated. And we have actually documented this in horses. We have found horses that were positive, had antibody against Neosporchiusi. As I said, the, 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 the last name is slightly different. So it's not Neosporchiusi, it's Neosporchiusi. But we have found broodmares that year after year after year after year would give birth to healthy foals, never developed EPM, but both, all these foals had evidence of transplacental infection. They were born with antibodies against the organism before they ingest colostrum. I think I should let you talk, Kim. I'm talking too much. Oh, yeah. So that's the second one. The last one that we just recently looked into it is Toxoplasma gondii. Probably everybody knows more about Toxoplasma gondii than I do. That's the organism where the cat is the definitive host. And it has an effect on human beings, mainly immunocompromised human beings. You probably all heard about like, pregnant women shouldn't be around cats or definitely not clean the litter box because that's the risk. And the pregnant woman becomes infected, then there's a risk that that infection may actually infect and get passed uh, to the developing fetus. But if we look at the percentage of Toxoplasma gondii and Neosporchiusii, that's in a single digit. So that's, you know, that's a minority. But it makes it a little bit more challenging, mostly because, you know, the, the, the diagnosis of EPM, I don't know if you wanted to move towards diagnosis, but this is a disease that is, has tremendous challenges. And what it is, is because we cannot identify the organism into the central nervous system, at least not in a living horse. Which means that we have to find surrogates of infection. And what we use, instead of looking at the parasite, we look at antibodies. And I said initially, you know, we can look at the blood of many horses, healthy and diseased horses, and then we can determine if they have antibodies. So serological assays are great because if an animal doesn't have antibodies, so if a horse walks and quacks like it has EPM, it's been going on for several weeks, and you test the blood or the venin pulse blood and the blood sample is submitted to a laboratory, and the blood results come back that there is no evidence of antibodies to any of these three parasites, that invariably almost rules out EPM. That's great. Unfortunately, because of the sheer number of horses that become infected, I said that that number is close to 70%, using blood and looking at antibody, even in a horse that has neurological disease, makes it challenging to determine, well, is this a culprit or not? Because I can take the blood of the horse in the next stall of that horse that doesn't have neurological disease, and that horse has the same level of antibodies, which makes it then difficult. This is why the veterinary community, there's been many research done on that, even two consensus statement that were written up where a panel of experts has brought up all the literature that is available, research, and 
and and experiences and drafted a document that gives guidelines. When it comes to the diagnosis, so if an owner, horse owner says, I want to get as close as possible to know, is it EPM or not? We need to have a different biological sample. We need to have what we call cerebrospinal fluid. That's the fluid that surrounds the central nervous system. That's a very privileged compartment. You know, I always say what happens in the CNS stays in the CNS, which means that collecting that fluid sample and analyzing it for antibody truly gives us a reflection of what happens within that specific compartment. Now, unfortunately, the collection of CSF is a little bit more cumbersome. Animal needs to be restrained. Animal needs to be sedated. There's different ways to do that. Some of these uh, procedures are done standing. Some of these are done recumbent. But beyond just collecting the cerebrospinal fluid for the purposes of determining antibodies, we have to remember that CSF is to the CNS to what blood is to the systemic system which means that when I collect the blood sample, I may not just look for antibodies. I may run a biochemical panel to look for electrolyte, muscle enzyme, you just name it. I may run a cell block count to be sure that I'm not missing on anything else. The same would apply to the CSF. That's a biological sample for which we can actually run more than just antibodies. We look at cell content, cell differentiation, or look at protein, and very specific, your muscular marker, <clears throat> or neurological marker, for degenerative diseases. So there's more to it. So an owner that says, I just don't want my horse to, to have that procedure done, remember that that's the most reliable and accurate way to support or rule out a diagnosis of EPM. And even if it's not EPM, it may suggest other neurological diseases. That's really the you know, ultimate biological sound. So that's the way you have to look at CSF, not just, oh, it's just antibody. It's just like, no, no, it's beyond antibody. It gives a lot of information. That's where we have the challenge. And so, you know, I've come because of, of the sheer number of horses that do test seropositive, where <clears throat> there's a lot of confusion is that every horse, and I'll be very sarcastic here, every horse that takes a misstep is labeled as EPM suspect unless proven otherwise. And that's very dangerous. We need to look, or veterinarians, and veterinarians do that, they're very aware of that. We need to define the case. So the first step, if you have a horse that is taking that misstep, it's not to just assume it has EPM, convince your veterinarian that a simple blood test is enough, and then the blood test comes back positive, and now you have the dilemma, are you gonna spend the money to treat this horse your horse may not have EPM. So where really it needs to start is observation. So as, a, as an owner, you need to observe. You need to document. Is this progressive? Is this one side, the other side? What are you as, as an owner noticing? And then you work with your veterinarian. Veterinarian will do a full physical evaluation, ideally, we'll do two additional exams. One is an orthopedic exam. We want to be sure that lameness isn't perceived as neurological disease. And that's where there's a lot of false EPM cases. As I said, a horse is lame. Well, he may look neurologic. And if you test, he may have antibodies, but you can treat him against protozoal organism. If your horse is lame, it's never going to improve. So that's very important. The other 
test is what we call a neurological exam. It's, it's a series of variable tests that determines how severely affected and where within the entire central nervous system the deficits are coming from. So while we're looking for EPM, remember this is an infectious disease and nature is never perfect, luckily. And so diseases, infectious diseases, never cause, or I shouldn't say never because it's biology, I just said it, but really cause symmetrical deficit. Symmetrical meaning right and left side equally affected. That's a random effect. Imagine, you know, it's, it's, you know, that organism, wherever it ends causing inflammation, it's not going to be bilateral on each side of the brain or each side of the spinal cord. So every time I look and I perform an orthopedic exam and I feel like, okay, this horse isn't lame. This horse truly has neurological deficit. I have to tell myself, what is... Where is the origin of this deficit? And is it progressive and is it symmetrical? Because if it's, let's say, acute, it just happened and it's symmetrical, it's very unlikely to be EPM. So I would not even engage in testing it. I would test for other more likely causes for such a presentation because I'm more likely to find a reason rather than find a positive blood sample that now. It's like opening a can of worms, like, what do I do with this? Well, if it was negative, it's great, but likelihood of being negative, it's, it's going to be very low. So it's going to be confusing. Now, if the horse on the other side has a progressive, with progressive meaning that you notice it's been going on, has been worsening over the past few weeks, and it's maybe asymmetrical at just one side of the horse, then I would say EPM, top differential. Absolutely. You've got to think about that. And then, you know, if you rule out others, you could say, I don't really, I don't really care what the antibody result will be. It, it really walks and quacks like it has EPM. My veteran has ruled out other lookalike. So, you know, I can move on into a treatment trial where you treat the horse and see if there is a response. So that's always an option. But in a perfect world, in instance like that, you would collect blood, you collect CSF, determine the antibodies even do ratios of serum to CSF with a quantitative test, so a test that brings a number, and then you will have a result that is meaningful, a result that is supporting or not supporting. And, and here's, here's the tricky part. Biology again, gray again, okay? So sometimes the result, I mean, most of the time, the result will support the clinical impression. Mean that a horse looks like it has EPM supported by the serum and CSF antibody measurement. Sometimes the horse looks like it has EPM, but the results are kind of borderline. They're not quite at that threshold. And we, what we need to remember is no diagnostic test is 100% sensitive and specific, meaning that there will be horses that have EPM but the blood work says no. There'll be horses that don't have EPM and the blood work says yes. And so there too, I like the clinical judgment. I like to be critical, objective and say, hey, you think this horse has EPM? Because as a veterinarian, if I tell myself, well, it's a maybe, you know, it's down number 11 or 12 of my differential, then I'll say probably not. But if I say, hey, you know what? I don't care what the blood results say. 
I rule out everything else. The only player that is still potentially involved with this entity is, you know, is sarcosystis. And and there too, you know, it's it's not because it's negative to sarcosystis. Maybe it's positive to Neospora. Maybe it's positive to Toxoplasma. So that's why it's a little bit of a massaging. You know, getting to a diagnosis required various steps and, and requires a lot of patience. And meanwhile, there's no wrongdo in treating an animal. Now, when it comes to treatment, the, you know, we're fortunate in the equine industry to have three labeled drugs they are um, fda labeled drugs meaning that they're drugs with the purpose of treating animal with epm which means that we have a treatment that we know is working now it works not in every single horse but it works in the majority of the horses and the more severely affected the animal is um, the more likely we'll see improvement we'll see improvement in all these horses but improvement only goes so far, the risk is always that the condition has led to irre irreversible neurological damage, so damage within the central nervous system, which means that the horse will have to learn to compensate to a certain extent. Uh, we shy away from any compounded products, so products that are mixed in a pharmacy, because they have, there's no proof of safety in these products. There's been many instances in the past where products were miscompounded, mixed uh, to higher levels, and that led to, you know, fatal outcomes. So we truly want to avoid that. We want to use drugs that are labeled for that purpose that have been validated, safe, with an expected efficacy. So that, that's really important. Now, how do you interpret the, the outcome? So the best, you know, the best outcome is horse looks like it has EPM, the amino diagnostics reported, you treat, horse is getting better. How long do you treat? Well, as long as, so, as long as you see improvement, you continue to treat. The second outcome looks like it has EPM, even maybe, you know, it didn't go to CSF top, you still believe it's EPM, you treat the horse, absolutely no improvement. You have to look for something else. Every horse is different. But in general, a horse will improve to that specific treatment if it has EPM. Needs to be treated long enough, which you know is highly variable. The most severely affected, probably the longer the treatment. But in general, I would say five to six weeks, even beyond that, as long as there is potential for improvement. And, and it's sometimes hard as an owner to see dramatic improvement. You know, it's 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 like you and I came with look at ourselves in the mirror every day and guess what we haven't aged i haven't aged i look the same as i looked 30 years ago i haven't seen myself aging so what i'm trying to say is that as an owner if you look at your horse and agonize over it every day you may not see that marked improvement so it's very important there too to work closely with your veterinarian have have dog come back after two three or four weeks reevaluate the horse do exactly the same test then you have a metric and you can say no unfortunately it's not there's no improvement so we have to look for something else or you say boy i see marked improvement in this horse so let's finish up the course of the treatment or maybe ex expand that course of treatment so there's this different strategy and and it's where you know you got to have the trust in your veterinarian as an owner and and work very closely 
with your veterinarians, try to find the best possible outcome. And is there anything that horse owners can do on their properties to prevent their horses from getting EPM or at least decrease the risk? Correct. I, I like what you say is, you know, the way I look at it, it's an occupational hazard. Being a horse in, in Northern, so in, in North America, or even it's, it's in all the Americas, and having continuous exposure to scat of a possum is a risk. It's a matter of when and where. Now, how can you pre- reduce the risk? So one is trying to prevent the opossum to get into contact and contaminate feed and water. So I really wanna say here, please, 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 do not eliminate the opossum. These animals have a role in the ecosystem. They're scavenger, they do a lot of good. Okay, so eliminating the opossum, if you eliminate one, another one's gonna take its place. You're not resolving the problem. Let them be around, but tell them where to live. So don't let them come into the feed room. Don't let them get in areas where you're feeding the horse on the ground. Be sure that grain and hay is in areas that are protected or you just, you know, you put a, you, you put a barrier. You, you, you prevent a possum from really entering and scavenging. Now, it's always possible that the, the hay that is bought contains these, that everything is possible. But in general, these are very simple process where you prevent the possum from entering and contaminating feed and water. And you also prevent a possum from entering areas in the barn or if it's an outside paddock where you're feeding the horse. So these are relatively simple steps. We, we know that if you have some areas have a greater population of a possum, other areas have barely any opossum. So that's highly variable. We know that, you know, if there's a wooden area close by, then your possum are more likely to stay in that wooden area. If you have sometimes, you know, what are they attracted to? They're attracted to food. So if, if, if you have a lot of, let's say, other animals, dogs and cats, and you feed them there, you're going to have a possum. You're going to attract these opossums. So be careful where you put that kind of food in areas where there is no risk for horses to, um, you know, to become infected. But, you know, there's no magic bullet. Now, there is the potential use of omedophilactic treatment, which is treating the horses during risky periods with low doses of some of these approved drugs. Now, these drugs are not approved for the prevention. It's just a twist in their use and that doesn't apply to every single horse that really would be restricted to high risk horses traveling or going to places being immunocompromised where there's a high risk of these horses becoming infected. There are, rare, there are areas in the US where we know or racetrack or places or event where we know that every single horse that gets there and stays there for a few days or a few weeks is likely to become infected, a heavily burdened with scalopopossum. So that would be an option. But that's, you know, if, if you as an owner have or see benefit, then I would say talk to your veterinarian. It's trying to find a protocol that works for you, works for your horse, and is supported by science. 
That's that's a really good tip there. I really appreciate it. And is there anything else that you'd like to add to horse owners about EPM? And I mean, I know that we're still learning things about EPM. There, there is a lot, as you said, and, and that's true. You know, we realize that's true for many infectious diseases. We're very good at the beginning of discovering or shortly after discovering a disease to put a lot of time emphasis in the performing research. And, and then we get kind of late. I wouldn't say lazy, but yeah, we just, we just live with it. You know, we, we know how to handle it. We're kind of like happy. Sometimes we get frustrated. And it's a shame because, you know, it's, it's considered one of the most common infectious disease. There's so much more to learn at the level of the host, the horse, the immune system, the way the horse interacts with infection. Um, a lot to learn about, you know, the, the definitive host, the opossum, and out of these parasites, where they're coming from, what are risk factors? And I want to be sure that, you know, we continue to be vigilant and continue you know, to support research and continue to enroll in somebody's trial just to gain more information. I always say the, the, way, we are, the way we are handling horses today, the event we go, that the platform is, is changing. If you look at, you know, people travel further these days, it's easy to travel, like to go to multi-week shows, I mean, the whole platform is, is changing. So with these changes, the epidemiology may change as well. So it's very important that the equestrian community continues to work at determining some of these factors. I'm actually glad there was just a very recent, actually last week, Havemeyer EPM workshop where a large number of research in the field of EPM get together, sponsored by this uh, amazing foundation, Dorothy Havemeyer Foundation, to bring people together, share information, promote collaboration down the road, and, and hopefully, you know, give that little boost in research, ideas, and needs and directions that we really need for this very specific field. And that's a great point. And thank you so much, Dr. Costello, for joining us today on the Equus Farm Calls podcast. And big thanks to our audience for joining us. And thank you to our sponsor, Farnham, for letting us have these chats. And if you as our audience have any suggestions or comments, you may contact me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Echoes Farm Calls is a production of the Equine Podcast Network and entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 